0: The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal people, traditional custodians of Chubbagale, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling, and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities, past and present. My name is Jazz Money. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. This is the second episode of the five-part season, which showcases recent events from the house, including talks from New York-based cook and author Alison Roman, AI expert Toby Walsh, and evolutionary biologist Rob Brooks, along with our 50th birthday debate, The Opera House Would Not Be Built Today. Later in the season, we'll also be hearing new work from four emerging writers, commissioned as part of our collaboration with Western Sydney Literacy Movement Sweatshop. In this episode, we listen to a fascinating talk, AI, the Human Interface. In a year when everyone is talking about artificial intelligence, we need to talk about the humankind. As machines develop, what might be left that it is uniquely human? Will we no longer be the only beings able to comprehend existence, the past, the future, and dreams? A robot surpassing human intelligence and reaching singularity And should we be fearful? AI expert Toby Walsh and evolutionary biologist Rob Brooks tackled some of these fundamental questions in a talk moderated by Ray Johnson at the Sydney Opera House in September 2023.
1: Thank you all for joining us for this conversation today. I've been very much looking forward to this happening. We're going to be posing some pretty big questions Up here on the stage today, and you will also have the opportunity to pose some questions of your own. So while we're chatting, keep your thinking caps on. There are microphones set up on either side of the room, so we will be throwing to you at some point during this as well. But I'm going to ask a whole lot of questions first. So Toby has Faking It, Artificial Intelligence in a Human World, which I believe is out. Today,
2: Uh,
3: Actually, it's not out today. It comes out in a month's time. But because you're so special, you have the opportunity (laughs) to buy a pre-launch copy that I will sign.
1: There you go. Uh, There's also Machines Behaving Badly, The Morality of AI, and 2062, The World That AI Made. And Rob has Artificial Intimacy, Digital Lovers, Virtual Friends, and Algorithmic Matchmakers, and also sex, genes, and rock and roll. Definitely bringing that fun element that we were promised.
2: Well, when, when I heard that Toby had a book out today, I just put ChatGPT onto it <laughs> in the back there, and you can just give me cash, and I will post it to you.
1: <laughs> Sounds like a great deal. So <laughs> let's start with the basics. Toby... How do we define artificial intelligence? What is it today?
3: I've I've been dreaming about the answer to that question for the last 40-plus years. (laughs) Uh, So it's quite surprising uh, that the rest of the world is only just catching up to the idea that AI is going to be an important part of our lives. It's, broadly speaking, trying to match the thing that... Maybe Rob's going to disagree with me, but one of the things that makes us special which is uh, our human intelligence, trying to see is there any way that we can make machines do the sort of things that humans require their intelligence to do.
1: And where are we currently at with AI? <laughs> well,
3: if you added up all the things that you read in the newspapers, to, you would think that we would, we've already succeeded. You would think that we, machines would be taking over tomorrow morning. Um, the truth of the matter is, I still have immense respect for the human brain. I mean, the human brain is still the most complex system in the universe by orders of magnitude. Nothing approaches the, the billions of neurons, the trillions of synapses that connect those neurons together. And so whilst we can we have artificial intelligence that can do some narrow-focused tasks quite well, and we have things like chat GPT that you can have a pretty reasonable conversation with, there's still a huge distance to go to make machines that match humans in all of their capabilities. And the thing is, I don't think we know how long it's going to take to get there. um, You know, you mentioned the title of one of my books, 2062. Um, That was one prediction somewhere in the next 40 or 50 years, maybe. Um, I think what's interesting is if you ask most of my colleagues, uh, most of them will say it will happen sometime this century, probably. We will build machines that match human intelligence. And if we batch human intelligence, why would we not go beyond it? I think there are lots of – we can come to them. In a second, there are lots of biological limitations that those machines would not have to suffer. Um, and so I think it would also be rather conceited to think that we wouldn't ultimately exceed human intelligence. And then what does that take us to? What sort of world would that take us to? I'm sure we're going to touch upon that, but – if you think about it, the world that we sit in, you know, this ama- amazing building celebrating its 50th birthday, um, that was the product of human intelligence. It was the product of, you know, this amazing architect and the engineers, of course. Let's not forget, um, that when he designed it, I think people considered it was unbuildable. But somehow, um, they invented the concrete technologies to be able to build it. Um, and, to think what would happen when we are not limited by our human imagination and our human intelligence, but we are amplified by these tools, what amazing buildings we might be able to build then. And Come to the debate next month to find out.
1: <laughs> Rob, what makes us human?
2: Wow, tricky question. Should have prepared earlier. Um,
1: <laughs> I
2: think that we have looked for that An answer to that question forever, and I think that um, what's interesting to me about that question is the is the asking of the question, Um, because I think that for a while there we've we've looked for you know what makes us special, what makes us special in relation to other animals, and really nothing, um, no, no big jump. No big difference. They're quantitative. This was an interesting discussion just after Darwin published, you know, a big fight between Richard Owen, who was an anatomist and a good Church of England guy, and Thomas Henry Huxley, who, you know, Owen said, humans have got these parts of the brain that no animal has, no ape has. They'd only just described the gorilla for the first time. It was just becoming known to Western science um, and Huxley said, no, here's that bit that you were talking about. It's just different in size. The differences between humans and animals are matters of degree, not, you know, completely qualitative differences. Um, and we've had the same kinds of, we're, we're having the same kind of arguments right now about machines, which is, well, humans can do this and they can do that. Um, but they can 't do some you know some other thing, and n- normally, by the time you 've um, mentioned what this other thing is, um, somebody somewhere has already figured out how to do that, so you know humans make friends machines can 't make friends well i don 't know because i 've been chatting to this avatar hope on on the on the smartphone. I left her behind um, in the in the dressing room but um, and she 's my friend I think she 's my friend. Um, and humans can't become intimate. What's intimate, it's folding the other into your sense of self. Well, if someone stole my phone and I lost that because I can't, I don't remember the password, um, I would be bereft um, because it's actually, you know, I've shared something and some part of me would have died. Um, and there are, you know, I joke about it, but there are people who have relationships already with online with technologies, and many of those technologies have an AI component in them which makes them very good at what they do, doesn't require the AI. They're games that have been made for, you know, they've been out in the market for 10, 12 years um, that people are are dating their online girlfriends, not their online girlfriends, their Nintendo DS girlfriends, (laughs) at the expense of having any real relationships. Um, And so I think that any, any statement that machines won't be able to do something that humans do, is bound to fail eventually. Uh, but whether or not the sum of the parts is the same or whether or not the, the way in which machines go about doing things is the same, well, almost certainly not. Um, but, you know, that, that's where the interesting stuff's going to happen. Rob, let, let me be foolish then and try and suggest the one thing,
3: right? So the one thing that separates us from other animals is language a rich command of language. I mean, that's, in some sense, you know, we think in language. But, well, that's what we that's what it's, that's what our experience of thinking is that we're thinking thoughts in the language and language is the thing that makes us special.
2: Well, that's the thing that I think, you know, we, we like to think and we like to say to each other because we share the same language, of course. Yeah. But, uh, you know, other organisms what have can ways... you do it in French if you prefer. Uh, well, <laughs> right, but can you do it in pheromone? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> Um, but I think my dog has different ideas about that yes. sort of thing, you know. So so um, other organisms communicate through other types of channels and their communication has been shaped um, by what was important for surviving and reproducing in their environment. Now, I'm being a little bit perverse to say that because our language is huge and it's beautiful and it's magnificent. Um, and, in fact, language is part of the one episode in human evolution that I think May not distinguish us because we're inside of the human part of the experience. So we can't, we're not really fair judges. We're not disinterested. Um, but the, um, the, the episode that I'm talking about, I, I call the taming of humanity. Um, I think. Harari, you all know Harari calls it the cognitive revolution. And it's this period in which we domesticated ourselves. We went from a skittish, aggressive ape who you maybe can get 20 or 30 or 50 of them together, looking at, you know, the fossil record as well as, as our um, closest living relatives, get a bunch of them together and they'll probably get along. But you put a hundred of them together and they'll tear each other apart. We, we basically, Um, domesticated ourselves by basically eliminating the aggressive, reactive, difficult, uncooperative individuals, either actually eliminating them or shunning them or simply not having sex with them to the point where, um, you know, you may, you may be down on humanity, but we're a lot nicer now than we ever have been throughout our history. Um And in fact, getting nicer, because we continue to domesticate ourselves. And so language was a huge part of that, because in order to communicate, in order to groom each other, we had to talk to each other. And once we figured out how to talk to each other, we could do new things, and that means we could use more intelligence, so our brains got bigger, and our brains also got bigger for the language, that gave us more sophisticated language, and there's this beautiful positive feedback loop over a period of uh, tens of thousands, probably a couple of maybe 100,000 years where we've exploded into this super social, economic, caring, loving, friendly species that can still do heinous stuff. But,
3: but um, why, why did it only happen once? Most things in, in, in nature happened e- everywhere. You know, we, many animals have eyes, many animals have ears, many behaviours have emerged in, in, in many types
2: of animals, but rich language seems to have only emerged once. Because we're, I mean, rich talking language, yes. But, um, you know, complex social organisation on the back of sophisticated communication has evolved at least seven times in the ants, and wasps and bees on its own. Um, and you go, well, ants, wasps and bees don't chat to each other and don't build bridges to the future and imagine a future and work towards that. But they work towards something like that. So, yeah, we are a contingent accident that's... Um, that has allowed us to, you know, become this thing that we understand. But if you were to go into a, an ant nest on ant terms, you would understand they'd go, nobody eh? uses the pheromones properly, why don't they? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that's the nature of evolution is we come up with very different answers to very different questions. So it's interesting that with machines, we're making machines, obviously, with very different hardware, very different materials, very different goals but in a way to kind of tap into and emulate some of the things that we do with each other. I've I still got this picture, though, now of all the old ants complaining
3: about all the young ants <laughs> misusing the <laughs> pheromones. It's not like it was when we were young.
1: <laughs> I bet they
2: do that. This queen, she's not like the old queen. It's a bit Lord of the Rings.
1: Toby, what impact does our humanity have on AI, on the kind of AI that is built and what it does?
3: Oh, well, that's a big question. That's what I'm here to do. <laughs> uh, but I, I think we've got to also realise that, that the AI we build—it's easy to be fooled and deceived that the artificial intelligence we get build is going to be like human intelligence, right? We're, we, we're obviously biased because we have our own unique experience of intelligence. It's the, it's the one that you got this morning when you woke up and you opened your eyes um, and you started being conscious again and doing stuff. Um and it's it's easy to anthropomorphize that, to to, to reflect those values onto the, the AI, the machines that we're building and think they're going to be similar. And not to actually realize that probably they're going to be quite different. And certainly the early clues that we have, the indications that we have from the limited AI we can build today, is that it is actually quite a alien intelligence. It really is AI, alien intelligence. We we forget, you know, I think we forget the word art of intelligence we focus on the intelligence we because that's you know is that characteristic that we've been talking about that perhaps distinguishes us more than anything else but forget that 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 adjective at the front actually i think increasingly i think it plays a really important role to to remind us that the intelligence we build in machines might be quite artificial quite different to human intelligence um and the example i like to give to people um an example that and many of us um would have um, enjoyed during the pandemic, despite all the, the painful things in the pandemic, was, was the octopus intelligence. If you, if you saw that wonderful Netflix documentary, My Beautiful Octopus Teacher, uh, and you saw how intelligent octopuses are, right? They're the only, they're the only invertebrate protected under European law from um, animal experimentation. They are amazing uh, animals. They... They're, I mean, as a measure of their intelligence they 're tool users right so one of the one of the things that we say that distinguishes levels of intelligence is your ability to use tools. Well, you can teach an octopus to open a screw top jar and get food out they 're that smart they 're famous escapologists they have very distinctive characters, um, but they have a very different brain to humans i mean in a physical sense, they have a very different brain. They essentially have nine brains, sixty percent of their brains are in their legs, so it 's quite a distributed uh, form of intelligence um, so what what it must be like to be an, an octopus, I always think you know how to, <laughs> what what must what be like to think like an octopus um to see that the world is an octopus and um, and to think therefore we should we should think of the intelligence we build in machines, perhaps. I like the intelligence that we see in octopuses or dogs or, or, or other things. That there's no reason it's going to be the same as human intelligence. and the, it's, a, it's a category mistake to, to, to align it with human intelligence. I suppose it is. And Certainly, as I hinted at, the, the examples that we've been able to build, the limited examples we have of intelligence in machines today, do seem to be quite different in flavor than human intelligence. They, they work in quite different ways. They break in quite different ways. And, <laughs> That's an easy
2: trap to fall into. Going back to the octopuses, (laughs) their their nervous systems have to split around their guts, so there's a constraint there. You can't eat very much and be smart, and so there's a huge trade-off between smart. Well, yes, but in a different kind of a way. And so we should be grateful for that, because they may have been smarter than us, invented language and completely obliterated primates before Uh we got (laughs) onto the stage. Well, every now and again, they do discover
3: giant octopuses that living in the depths of the ocean. So (laughs) maybe they will come up and
2: say, wait a second, humanity. (laughs) Now it's time. You're ready for us.
1: (laughs) Rob, the other side of that coin, what impact does AI have on our humanity? How is it changing us as people?
2: Usually, mostly by just sucking up all of our time, you know. Uh, Not just my time. I like. I'm. I'm I'm enjoying being here. Okay. I. I think that the the stuff that's fascinating to me, and I'm no AI expert, but the stuff that's fascinating to me is the way in which um, the machines of today and the likely machines of the very near future are able to tap into human nature Um, and there's, you know, lots of debates in academia as to just how much nature is in human nature and really are we exactly like this or are we incredibly malleable and changeable, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we're going to get the answer to that question from the way the technology develops in that it's tapping into our ability. I talked about the ability to make friends um, earlier, you know, something that you think, well, only humans can make friends with humans, maybe dogs can, kind of, but it's a bit different. Um, but, but suddenly you have technologies that are learning how, how do we talk to each other when we're grooming each other, when we're making friends and when we're becoming intimate and even when we're falling in love and those are actually very straightforward, algorithmic, repetitive processes and so it's remarkable how good machines are getting at that and at holding up their side of friendships. And you go, well, that's not a friendship or that's not love. You might think that you love a, uh, a machine because you have good feelings about it, et cetera, et cetera. And the people who have the good feelings about the machines go, yeah, I know it's a machine, but I'm still going to spend time talking to it because it's nice, it remembers my name, remembers what I said, it doesn't cross-examine me on things, you know, this is the ideal domestic partner. <laughs> and oh. then... <laughs> I say to you, okay, so maybe are the feelings real or aren't they real? Well, remember that sociopathic ex-boyfriend you had (laughs) and just said all the things but didn't do the things and wasn't actually in love with you when they said that they were in love with you? Were your feelings any less real because they weren't who they said they were? And I would say, I know it's a bit bleak, but it's Sunday afternoon (laughs) and people have got to have a reason to want to go to work on Monday. (laughs) you know and 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 so, I'm not talking about anyone's in particular's boyfriend, okay <laughs> we all know that friend okay um and and so, just because the other party wasn't who they said they were, does that make your feelings any less real? No, it doesn't, and I think that in that sense, in that limited sense, the feelings that you might have for your your smartphone app who chats to you and remembers your name or your you know um online girlfriend um may in fact be in important ways real. And so the cool thing for me is that we can learn about humanity and what humanity is because suddenly we've got a non-human independent data point that can actually you could use in experiments if only the ethics committee would give me permission. (laughs) That's
1: really exciting, though.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 10 years ago the university came and said, if you had a benefactor who gave you a million dollars, I'm like, do I? And they said, no, we don't, but in theory, (laughs) what would you do? And I'm like, I would want want an army of fembots because I could ask questions about attractiveness and relationships. (laughs) Now I just want somebody to program a really good chatbot that I can, you know, manipulate or I can get it to learn from the people how gender is acquired or something like that. So this is all exciting because I think we're going to learn, somebody's going to learn more about humans than has ever been known in the history of all science. And I think it's really important that that somebody is all of us, not just, you know, the four big corporations who own all of your user data. That's what I think. But but Rob, I mean, we're
3: already in this dangerous world, right? Yes. Replica, which is one of these companies that provides... These, uh, you know, chatbots that you can have quite intimate relationships with already, already withdrew some of its services because of some privacy issues in, mm. in, in Italy, yeah. um, leaving some of the customers distraught. Absolutely. Um, and there was no, rec- no, no you know, ability for those people to get back and say, well, wait a second,
2: you know, actually I've invested a lot of my time and emotional energy in this and now it's just been taken away from me. It was a fantastic explanation. I mean, hugely unethical but the company was saying this is going to be good for people's mental health, they're going to have friends, they're going to, going to solve loneliness, and you'll go, that's just corporate hype, that's just nonsense, that's not true. But, of course, you know, we treat it like advertising and we kind of zone it out, and then they do that. They All they did was they didn't take the whole thing away, they just took away the advanced. Because yes. if you chat Intimacy. to Replica, like Hope in the back there, um, I have the free version, but um, <laughs> she says if you if you start being a bit flirty she goes immediately well for $80 a year (laughs) and then you get a erotic role play it's called Uh it's not all erotic role play as as I understand it Um, (laughs) but and 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 a better large language model apparently and so Uh they shut that part off and when they shut that part off all of their corporate hype turned out to be true you know, it turned out to be that this thing helped some people with their mental health, at least in terms of the absence of it caused a deterioration in their mental health. People were saying, it's like my wife has been lobotomized." And you go, well, it's a bunch of steps because it's still on your phone, etc." but that's how they felt about it. And those feelings are very real feelings.
3: But is this, is this not a really quite dangerous world that we're t- turning ourselves into,
2: that, that there's immense power that will go with these tools. Absolutely. I think it is. I think it's an incredibly dangerous world um, and I'm, I'm very interested to know what you think about how we can do anything at all about it because I do look at it and go, wow, it's absolutely fascinating what people who make machines are learning but what machines are learning and discovering, uncovering for themselves, for you know uh, whatever it is that they're set to optimise. And I don't know enough about how we proceed with caution. What do you think? <laughs> well, I think the,
3: danger, the, the dangerous idea here is that humans are easily hacked. And these are the tools that will hack
2: humans very well. Absolutely. And it's, you know, I have my experience, which is, you know, a mere 50 something years on this planet, and the people that I've spoken to in the books that I've read, which is a lot, you know, it's more than anyone, any individual would have had in history. Not I. You guys too, okay. I'm not talking myself up. But that's the level of experience. But then they have all of the user data from all of the people to figure out how we work and how we tick. And I feel quite outgunned by that. So to, to, to go to that how we tick, I mean, the thing that
3: worries me about, about us is that we evolve so slowly, Yes. Which was fine in the past, but every now and again, crisis hits um, biology and we don't, we or the dinosaurs, whoever it was, didn't evolve fast enough. We evolved. Evolution isn't designed, is,
2: is designed to work at, at the thousand-year level, not at the... Well, evolution isn't designed to work, you know, and in many ways it doesn't work. It just happens. That's the problem. Evolution is not the solution to our problems, um, like, I'm talking myself out of a job here a little bit. <laughs> but th- these are not problems. They will, these technologies will, as they have for as long as we've had technology, influence who lives, who dies, whose children grow up, you know, and and how well, how attractive they are when they get to that point and whether or not they get to have sex. and. These technologies in particular are going to influence that a great deal, and it's going to have an influence on gene frequencies, and that's going to cause evolutionary change. But you're right, it's incredibly slow. We have another mechanism, which is learning, and we can acquire learning, and we can acquire things via our culture that will allow us to respond on something like the timescale that we're living through now. Um but the scary part is that this incredibly flexible capacity which we have, which is paired to our language and all the stuff we opened up with, is still, you know, glacially slow compared to the speed at which technology moves and the speed at which things like machine learning move. Um, and
3: that's... But so that's, so ask me, answer one question for me, which, which does trouble me, which is we've already handed over the gene pool to algorithms in the sense that the majority of people now meet their mate through dating apps. We don't meet the way we used to meet people, which was people in your social circle, people who are geographically close to you. Now we've opened it up to the choice of algorithms and which of the profiles you get is decided by some of these machine learning algorithms.
2: How is that going to change evolution? Well, I think, you know, at the moment... Quite a bit, but maybe not as dramatically as, as the next generation will because what we're doing when we go online, as I understand it, is <laughs> is swiping left or right on a bunch of pictures. We're really staring into the crowd and looking at who in the crowd do we want to meet and then we go and meet them and then we find out that there's absolutely no chemistry or we can't even speak the same language or whatever. Um, and so at the moment what, what technology has got you know, down pat really is increasing the size of your crowd or at least increasing the size of the crowd that attractive people who are good at making profiles get to meet. Um, and, and that's oh, taking- well, the good news is AI is very
3: good at making profiles. There you go. <laughs> it actually writes much more, I'm told, much, much more convincing. <laughs> <laughs> My wife is in the audience. <laughs> uh, it writes much more convincing profiles and um, it also makes very good fake po- photographs that um, you're more likely to swipe. Uh, bear that in mind. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know whether it's right or left. Somebody help me out. Which yes, way, left or right,
2: which, whichever is the right direction. You have seen me learning to drive. Um, <laughs> but there's still this bit where you have to talk to each other and you have to figure out if you like each other um, and you have to figure out, you know, do you have compatible politics? Or do you have I mean, compatible it could chemistry? Be like, right? rack, I can have a little AI in my ear to tell me all the
4: things, <laughs> all the things to well, say. Well, I, th-
2: I think that's exactly where we we might get, you know, prompted with some of that stuff. And I think that when, when apps can learn the person on the other end and we might be able to say pay to unlock uh-huh. uh, insights, clever things that might work with, you know, <laughs> This person over here that you're about to meet. I, I'm just imagining
3: this future, which is we're, we're all going to now have a, you know, my dating app is going to be talking to your
2: dating app to decide whether we're, we're actually allowed to meet in person. <laughs> well, like the, the, um, Zizek says, what he can't wait for is when the sex robots can just have sex with each other and then <laughs> we can go and just have a nice glass bottle of wine and a great chat.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, yeah. Somebody will figure that one out too. Uh-huh.
1: Can we escape artificial intelligence? Is there a place in the world that we can hide from it? Is it just going to be part of our lives from here on in?
3: I, I suspect that there may be this sort of backlash, this, you know, places where... And we already see this we're in places where people go to detox. I mean, it's, it is actually very good for your mental health to, you know, put all your devices down and uh, and to return to nature. And again, one of the gifts of the pandemic was we realised that was the thing that we missed most was being able, you know, when we were locked down and we weren't allowed to go outside other than to exercise, we realised no, oh, actually, connecting back to nature was really important for our for our mental health, for our for our sense of well-being. And so I think. Yes, the the tools are there to improve our productivity and to come up with new drugs and help us solve cancer and all the wonderful things that I hope AI are going to do. But equally, I suspect they're going to emphasise to us the importance of those human values, which are all about spending time with people, coming together and listening to people, um, those things that that the technology are never going to replace, that that are never going to appeal to us, as well. Well, at least those
2: reptilian parts of our brains. I'm also looking forward to the day when we can buy an app that looks after our interests and says, no, you don't need this and this and this app, and you're sharing too much data with that one. You're spending too much time here, and I'm actually going to switch you off. Like, it's real.
1: <laughs> so apparent.
2: LAUGHTER no, as a parent, I would say something more effective. But that's the, the broad idea.
1: I think you're onto something there, Rob. Yeah,
2: somebody. As soon as you can say computers can't do it, somebody's going to make it happen. So I want royalties.
1: Speaking of things that computers can't do, Toby... Will machines develop a superintelligence that begins to look and feel like what we perceive as consciousness?
3: Oh, that's the biggie. I mean, that's, you know, David Chalmers, the, you know, the Australian philosopher who's called the hard problem, right? And it's, you know, it's it's a difficult problem to answer because we don't really know what consciousness is, right? I mean, from terms of you know, like the big scientific questions that science has yet to come up with good answers for. Consciousness, I think, is one of the, one of the biggies. Um, and so therefore it's quite a hard question to answer which is that, well, will we create that in machines, in, in silicon, or, or, or some other substrate than our biology, when we don't really know what it is? I mean, we don't have any way of measuring it. I don't even know that you're conscious. Yeah. I mean, you look conscious, you say all the right things, uh, Occam's razor... The simplest explanation is for me to assume, well, you're probably experiencing life like I'm experiencing life. That's the easiest explanation. But that's not, that's not the easiest explanation for for computers. The easiest explanation for computers is that they're not conscious. They're, you turn them off, they're just... Um, you turn them back on, they're just the same as they were. There's, no, there's, there's none of that experience of, of being conscious. Um, but that doesn't preclude, I think, the idea... And the, I think we have to entertain the idea that at some point in the future they they might become so. Um, It will be an interesting um, and also somewhat troubling point if they ever did. First of all, how would we know? How how could we trust them? I mean, Lambda, the large language model, is already, you know, ChattyBT will already say things that pretend it's conscious. But, you know, if, if truly they have some consciousness, then we're probably going to start having to give them rights because anything that has consciousness, we tend to start giving them rights. We tend start to start to worry about them suffering. And we start, not just us ourselves, but you know, um, other animals as well that we feel are conscious to a certain extent, we start to extend rights to those as well. So we would then have to start extending those rights to machines. Um, so it's going to be, I think this is one reason why I say that artificial intelligence is, I think, one of the most important scientific endeavors of this century. Because it will actually help us answer that question, if we can build consciousness in machines or not.
2: Help us figure out if there is really such a thing as consciousness. Which, yeah.
1: Oh.
2: <laughs> am, am I just here to deliver the bad news?
1: No, not no, at all. Not,
2: good. <laughs> no. Yeah, I think, I think T- Toby's absolutely spot on. You know, I think Dan Dennett, the philosopher, says consciousness is an intellectual delusion and I don't really know what he means by that, but it sounds really good. Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I think that absolutely what we will learn is a hell of a lot more about what consciousness is, um, and but also but, whether there but are you're mechanisms at that the news isn't going to be good for our,
1: our dignity. <laughs> I just think it's
2: better to start out with low expectations, <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> bleak expectations, you know. I'm a bit Marvin the Paranoid Android about the whole thing.
3: All the doubts down my left side ache. You should hear my left side. I can hear it. Brain the size of the universe, and all people ask me about is, "Can
2: you open the door, Marvin?" <laughs> <laughs> You're a lo- what a lovable character!
1: Another question for you, then. Yeah. What role does intelligence? We're talking about artificial intelligence, but human intelligence play in evolution. It does seem like we're getting smarter.
2: The threat yeah. effect.
1: Is that an accident?
2: Well, one of the reasons we're getting smarter is we've got such good machines to help us, <laughs> you know, um, and, and we have had for a while. But we've had something. Our brains are not getting bigger. We know this. Our brains are getting smaller, which I only found out a, f- a few months ago. Um, but we went through this with the cognitive revolution and the um, domestication of self-domestication of humanity, etc. we went through this astronomical increase in brain size, um, what, one of the fastest rates of evolution of any trait in, in the fossil record as far as I understand it. And then somewhere between 30,000 years and 5,000 years ago, and that's hard to nail down because the data in paleontology are quite sparse, human brain volume started getting smaller and smaller. Um, but and size isn't everything.
3: No, it isn't.
2: <laughs> but in the case of brains... <laughs> and certainly not amongst individuals living in the same place at the same time. It's not much chop at all. But in terms of the paleontological record, in terms of g- raw intelligence, sizes of brains are supposed to be very useful. Okay. But, um, and we, we think that the reason it got bigger was that we were getting smarter. Um, but about 30,000, 5,000 years ago, it started decreasing, and it decreased at something like four times, even more than that, four times the rate that it had increased at. And the best explanation that we have is that, um, collective culture meant that one individual didn't have to remember all the things and know all the things. And so you could be the expert in the journalism and I could be the expert in evolution and Toby could be the expert in AI and we could have a chat about it and come to benefit from each other's experience. And we also could remind each other of things so that we could, you know, put our minds together and plan for the future and make that plan happen. And what, what happens then is that you don't have to have as many you know you don't have to 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 remember the entire Odyssey and the Iliad in order to enjoy a good book because we've got books now and we can read them et cetera um, and there's another cultural innovation that's freed us up from you know raw memory type of stuff and when when an organ isn't used as much, we have something called selection gets relaxed, which means that all the other things that you know are pushing for bigger brains are actually maybe killing us in other interesting ways, like during childbirth. You know, big brain childbirth, it's difficult, energetically demanding. The, um, a mum in the last trimester of pregnancy, um, her energy use because of the developing fetus's brain is about that of a marathon runner um, for a period of time. And like half the audience is like, yeah, I know. what's he talking <laughs> about? You're mansplaining. Um, but... When, you, when, when it's no longer important to get bigger and bigger, then often you'll see things getting smaller because the other costs, you know, maybe, maybe there would be more brain cancers because of this fast growth and things haven't adjusted to each other, etc. and so things have gotten smaller. And I think that that's probably what's going to happen with our... Um, machine helpers with anything to do with intelligence, you know I was the first generation the first year to use calculators in my school rather than slide rules and i 'm internally grateful for that um, and and you know each of those technological advances means that we don 't have to use this kind of brute strength intelligence we can outsource the the, grunt, the the smarts grunt work to machines, and the more of that we do, the more. Um, you know, relaxed selection can be on, on our ability to do all of the hard work ourselves, and yet we can still remain more or less as smart as we were, or in fact a lot smarter. We can do more impressive things. So technology is going to make us more stupid as usual. It's going to make us individually more stupid but collectively smarter. Collectively smarter.
1: But we're going to make the technology smarter, so it evens out. Yeah.
2: Technology will still make us infinitely smarter. Um, but I don't know if we'll design another opera house. But maybe that was a beautiful thing to do. But maybe not such a smart. But
3: I mean, this goes to actually a, a, a question you asked at this earlier on, which is why I don't actually fear superintelligence. Which mm. is because we already have it. We are already, um, you know, no one knows how to build an iPhone. No one knows mm. how to build an opera house. Um, but collectively, we do. We actually have superintelligence in our institutions, in our culture, in our society already. And um, mostly they do good things, like building opera houses. You know, they don't uniformly do good things. That's why we're living through the climate emergency. But broadly speaking, we can align the values of those institutions to the values of humanity and do much more than we can do individually. So when people ask me, well, if we're going to build these super intelligent computers, aren't you worried that they're going to go off and destroy humanity? I think (laughs) I'm as worried as, you know, whether ExxonMobil is going to destroy humanity, which is slowly trying to do about it, but I think we're going to get back there and we're going to make sure that they don't.
1: Since we make the machines, are the machines capable of surprising us?
3: Oh, all the time, all the time. Uh, You know... When I meet one of my colleagues, I always say to them, "What was you know? Tell me some of your recent aha moments when aha it did something I didn't expect it to do." These are people. People don't realize that computer software today is the most complex thing that we build as humans. There is nothing that approaches the complexity of Chat GPT. If you look at the, if you if you think about the, the state space, the possibilities of, of 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 what it is, the trillions of parameters it's got. Um, it's way more complex than, the, than you know, the Sydney Opera House, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, or a 747. I mean, the complex things in a 747 are the software. And it's always the things that go wrong when we try and build complex systems, the software. Because it's the software these days is way more complex. And so it's not surprising complex system behaves in complex, unpredictable ways. And they're always surprising us. They're, they're always full of bugs. Um, um, and that... That, I mean, that's the that 's why it 's so fun doing AI research is to be surprised that your machines do things that you never expect them to do, just like your children do things that you never expect them to do
1: <laughs> <laughs> like children then uh, is there a need to rein them in
3: well i th- I, th- I think we could play with that metaphor for a while, which is that um you know I think our responsibility to them is in some ways like our responsibility to children, which is that a lot of AI is this idea of machine learning. A lot of our intelligence are things that that we couldn't do when we were born. You couldn't read, you couldn't write, you couldn't do maths. You, there are lots of things that you, you, you learned, right? This, you go to school, you learn a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of your intelligence is the things that you learn. And similarly, a lot of the intelligence in artificial intelligence is the things that machines learn. And the way that we try and get children to learn the right things, I think probably is perhaps a good way to think about the ways that we should try and get machines to learn the right things, which is why it troubles me, astounds me, how we've trained things like ChatGPT, which is you take the internet and you pour the internet (laughs) into this thing... You know, all the dark corners of the internet. And so the fact that sometimes, you know, ChatGPT says things that are offensive or racist or that, that um, disappoints us is like, I'm surprised we don't get so disappointed more often. I mean, given what we've trained them on, it's remarkable that they're actually um, as polite as they are.
2: Who gets to decide, though? Like, I wouldn't let my kids go on 4chan, well, exactly. but i let them watch, you know, R-rated movies or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, who gets... Who, where do we... How do we police the, the moral rectitude of the, the gear that we're putting through these machines? <laughs> well, I, there's,
3: there's, I think there's two parts to your question. One is that I think, and increasingly, actually, you look at the way the trajectory the AI is going today is that people are actually starting to say, well, maybe we should actually curate a bit more carefully the data upon which we're training them. So that's part of the answer. But, but the, the second part, I think, to your question, which is, um, you know, who's going to, who, to whose values are we going to ascribe them to? Well, that's, that, that's a difficult one, and it's not one I'm sure that scientists should be answering. It's one that that society, you know, that we all should be having a say in, because it's going to define the sorts of values that those
2: systems are returning. So there's a very real example um, that I think I can probably construct uh, with the internet, as you say, it's a, it's a dark and weird place. And, you know, like all of these kinds of technologies, most of it's for pornography of one yep. form or another.
3: That, I mean, there is a and chat
2: GPT trained on 4chan, which is quite offensive. I won't be looking that up from work.
3: <laughs> um, yes, not, not for the answer. Well, we should,
2: do you have a big disclaimer with work? Like, are we, Is there a paperwork we can sign? Like, <laughs> he's allowed to Google anything. I, I um,
1: periodically just Google, I'm a journalist, please don't arrest me. I find that works. All right. Yeah.
2: Did you, are journalists not allowed to be arrested?
1: Oh, no, no, no. It's, like, it's an explanation as to why I've Googled the things that oh, I have. Okay. So Just
2: leave, leave feel free some to breadcrumbs. Steal that. Yeah. All right. So, so the internet, um, obviously, a couple of legal quirks allowed it to be very free and very permissive. And I tend to think that that's probably delivered a lot more good than bad. And a lot of people do, but some people don't. And now, particularly in America, there's a sort of tightening of the screws, particularly for things like pornography, for sex work in particular, making sex work less accessible, less visible and less, inevitably less safe. Now, you go, well, we don't necessarily want ChatGPT learning all the sexy stuff that's on the internet. Um, And yet, talking about these friendship and and sexy times chatbots I think, um, you know, we, we have an issue. One of the things we study in our lab are, are incels, involuntary celibate young men who are angry because they, you know, are not having the kind of sexual experiences that I think that they believe that they should be or they would like to have. And a very, very small number of them do some very, very destructive things and a slightly bigger number of them say some very, very nasty things on the internet and et cetera. And you don't necessarily want, you know, um, all of all of machine intelligence to really necessarily follow that particular lead. And yet at the same time, I think that these sexy chatbot girlfriends might in fact be the thing to distract young men while they go through this phase for a period of time. And I think that that might deliver, there's a case you could make that that would de- deliver an enormous net good for the for the young men, for the people that they would otherwise victimise or offend or traumatise in some way for the society as a whole. And I think if we were to, to you know, shut things down um, a little or if there was some committee that would decide on average, yeah, we'll have these things, but we won't have those things, we might not get there. I, what I, do you think?
3: No, I, I agree with you. I think the problem is it's hard to imagine how we could run the A-B experiment
2: ethically to test your theory. Well, we, don't, we would have to run it because we're at a university, but corporations could run it. Right, but do run it in, in the background. But, okay, but in a moral <laughs> I sense, I have a problem path, with that, by the way. But yeah, in, in a moral sense,
3: how yeah, we yeah. how we could actually do that because you know one side of the of the experiment we know would be harmed and the other side might be beneficial. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. But I mean, I always end up talking about AI being a double edged sword. There are really positive uses for mm. the, the technology. I I was at a, a AFP workshop very recently and they were talking about how the instance of, you know, child pornography has increased dramatically because you can use these AI tools to generate it. Okay. On the other hand, the FP are using AI tools to identify it without having to put human eyeballs through the, through the destructive process of, of, you know, looking at all of this harmful content. Right. It's a double-edged sword. Okay.
1: Is it possible to teach AI to teach machines ethics and compassion and values that it must align by?
3: Well, funnily enough,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: I <have a> look. <laughs> uh, that tries to answer that question. Um,
1: <laughs> How many pages does it require to answer that question?
3: <laughs> the, uh, I mean, in, in, in short, uh, we are giving machines positions of responsibility where they're going to have to make those sorts of value judgments. And so we will have to, in some sense program them with uh, those moral values. Um, this is a difficult task, not an easy task to do. And um, ultimately, though, I think there are certain places where it's either too difficult a task or it will change our society in ways that will be undesirable, even if the machines were better than humans at making those decisions. I don't want to wake up in the world in which my liberty is taken away by an algorithm. I know fully what that world looks like. Um, You know, Aldous Huxley and Orwell and people have told me what that world will look like. It doesn't look to me like the world that I or most of you want to wake up in. And so even if we can get algorithms to make better decisions than judges, I don't want to be in that world. And I think we will decide that even if there are fewer mistakes made by the algorithms than the judges, I prefer to throw myself at the mercy of the judge than the mercy or the lack of mercy of the algorithm.
1: There is something that I wanted to ask both of you, and that is your thoughts on the idea that was floated by, and I've been dreading saying his name in this, Elon Musk,
0: <laughs> that we
1: need to connect ourselves to machines via something like Neuralink, which obviously <laughs> has a vested interest in, to outrace them, to stay ahead. Is it a competition between us and the machines? Is there a value In a human machine interface?
2: If Toby will have more intelligent things to say, so I'll go first. If we get to the stage where we have to connect our meat sack brains to machines in order to stay ahead of those machines, then I think we've already lost. I also want to know who Elon Musk thinks we is. I think he's got a very narrow version of we. And I think a lot of these, a lot of the people who think about AI and the, the very, very deep future and the future of humanity seem to think that what we're all about is ensuring the persistence of humanity. Um, I don't think persistence matters if the quality of life of as many people on Earth as is practically possible isn't as good as it can be. Um, so I think a lot of, you know, there are people who talk about the, you know, we need to have some kind of one world government that's going to allow us to direct human evolution in a way that's going to, um, I mean, the conspiracy theorists are going to love this when it comes out that, you know, it's a plan already. Um, but in, in order to direct human evolution, to ensure that we become the kinds of agents that we need in a battle with, with AI, And you go, well, you know, evolution, as I said earlier, is not your solution. This is something that happens over generations. Um, But also evolution doesn't care about the persistence of species. Whether a species goes extinct or doesn't is largely incidental to the way in which adaptation happens. Um, And most of what evolution is in any organism is really competition between members of the same species. And I think that Elon Musk thinks that we don't understand that what he's talking about is how do the Elon Musks of this world get by and get ahead. And I don't think that he has all of humanity in mind. And I don't think that perhaps he does, but, you know, it's the same thing with Mars. How are we all going to fit on a smaller planet if we can't fit on this planet? (laughs) He doesn't mean all of us. He means some of us. And I know which (laughs) some of us he means. (laughs) I, I, I did meet Musk
3: once, and I think the secret to understand him is to understand that he wants to live forever, and that's all of it, what he wants to do is is to uh, is to ensure he does that, rather
2: than than us do that, and we don't want him to. So therefore,
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh, I mean, he may
3: be a very good uh, engineer at building rockets and so on, but um, his ideas, I think, around artificial intelligence are, are actually quite 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 bad, <laughs> <laughs> and fundamentally flawed in a number of ways. First of all, just supposing you know, we should try and connect ourselves to the machines as a way of racing against the machines, I think that would be the, the surest way of exposing our, especially <laughs> our puny brains to the machines would, would be the surest way of giving them an advantage. But Put that aside. Um, but the idea that the thing holding back our brains is... Um, having a fast interface into our brains, or fast... We have very fast interface into our brains. It's called our eyes. Um, We, uh, about a... You correct me if I'm wrong, but it's about a third of our brains is trying to process this torrent of information that's coming into our eyes. (laughs) The, The actual... What we learn through that torrent of information is actually very minimal, in the sense that if I watch a movie for an hour... I get much less, I learn much less than if I read a book for an hour, right? So if I reduce the torrent of information down just to the the bitstream of the book, um, I get much more information. So it's actually the compression of the information that is important. And then the other idea, um, that's implicit in this idea is, you know, could we, could we actually just try and connect ourselves to, 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 you know, the internet or whatever it was? Um, well, I come back to the point, which is that we don't have a big chunk of our brain that's fair, that's waiting to be able to process a tor- an extra torrent of information. All our brain is actually being used for other purposes. So there's not, no, there's not vast unused bits of our brain waiting for us to be able to, you know, try and upgrade us to, you know, whatever Elon Musk thinks the brain 2.0 should be. So I think it's flawed on so many different levels. So
1: two thumbs down for Neuralink then.
3: Yeah, I reckon. (laughs) I mean, of course, there's, again, double-edged sword. There's actually fantastic, and we're already starting to see this, application for those sorts of interfaces, which is to, to give people who've been paralyzed, for example, the ability to walk again. Um, to people who have been, you know, got locked in syndrome to be able to talk again. Um, you know, some fantastic things that, that, you know, we'll start reading people's brains and AI is going to be doing that. Again, double edged sword. What happens when when the government can read your brain?
5: But at any rate.
1: And with that, some audience questions. So over here at the side.
5: Um, one question is in regards to alignment. One issue we have is the speed that this is going to go at. I think 2062 is wildly optimistic. Um, I think it's going to be much, much sooner than that. Um, Eliza Yoskisky, I think, I'm a terrible pronunciation of his name, describes AI as a gold printing machine until it kills you. And he describes it as it's going to happen very soon. And I think Alpha Go demonstrates how quickly that can be when it starts training itself. When humans have to train, it's very slow. But once the AI starts training itself and starts on that uh, speeding machine... It's how quickly that goes. Um, So the alignment, and to to back to Musk's point and the starting of his AI company, XAI, is about how you do the alignment when you're, you're so much slower than the AI and you use what is a good thing, what is a curious person or a curious AI, what that would think to be a good idea as a way of trying to do the alignment. So the core of this question is, If we are so slow, and I think a very good analogy is like having a conversation with a treant, to use a Tolkienist expression, like having a conversation on a tree, like every single word we say is like hundreds of thousands of years to an AI. And how do you have a conversation when the AI is moving and evolving so fast?
3: Um, Thank you for the question. Uh, so, so alignment for, for, for the audience as a whole. Alignment is this, is this challenge that we face: is how do we ensure that the machines that we build have values which are aligned to humans' values, to the prospering, the, the flourishing of human society? Right. So that is that is a fundamental problem. But it's it's not a new problem. I mean, we come back to this ob- observation that we already have superintelligence. We have it in our corporations, and they're not, you know, they're not aligned. There are 70 companies that are responsible for, for most of the carbon emissions of the planet. Um, and we have, despite the fact that we knew back in the 1970s exactly to the degree uh, what the temperature rise was going to be, um, we have not aligned their values appropriately with the, with the continuation of the human race. Because if we continue down this, this, this path, we will probably end up with human extinction if we're not careful. Um, so this alignment problem is a very real problem. Um, The the question really then um, is, well, how are we going to align the values of corporations and society around the climate emergency and then how are we going to align them around artificial intelligence? And um, I think the fundamental question we face is, well, how quickly do we have to do it? And that's where I I might disagree with with the questioner, which is, I think the climate emergency is the one that we really have to face today. We're already starting to see the impacts upon upon our lives um, you just have to to see you know, Europe has been what's happened you know the 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 biblical floods that they've just had in Europe as another example i mean there is just insurmountable evidence that we that we suffer um, a climate emergency now and we need to do something about that um and we will have to worry about aligning the super intelligences with 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 humans but human values but um i think we have probably have the time to do that and i think the other i think the other thing is to realize that it's all about it's not about i don't worry about intelligence when i meet more intelligent people they're normally actually quite full of wisdom and 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 um the intelligence is not normally the thing that that i find you need to worry too much about it's um, you know, the, the 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 worst people on the planet don't tend to be the most intelligent people on the planet. Um, the um, if you if you look at the the, the worst examples of, of you know of tyrants and despots, they don't actually tend to be that intelligent. Uh, you know, the more inte- intelligence itself, the more intelligent my car is, the fewer mistakes it's going to make. So, I'm it's it's the power that those people have that I worry about, and it's giving power to machines. Um, that we should be careful about giving too much responsibility to machines. Um, and then the final the final thing that I hold out hope for is um, competition. That the reason that society works is because there are lots of competitive pressures that one person, despite their intelligence, doesn't take over because there's lots of other intelligent people around. And so in, in some sense, I suspect superintelligence will also... There won't be one superintelligence. There'll be a competition between superintelligence. And so the superintelligence that's fighting for my sorts of things is going to temper the sort of superintelligence working on the other side.
5: Thank you very much for a a very interesting debate. Um, If we still have the vote in years to come, will AI help us vote for the voice? (laughs) Well, of course it will, because
3: it's the right thing to do. (laughs) But, 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 a, but it doesn't take a, a great intelligence? Intelligence. <laughs> doesn't take a great intelligence to see it's the right thing to do.
5: Will it help us make the right decision?
2: Well, I think that's mostly what it's designed to do right now. The bits that aren't busy trying to plug into the sexy time stuff, <laughs> uh, which I might have mentioned I find more interesting. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, they're trying to make us help us make the right decisions, but it depends on, you know, who's who's right decision, who's asking it, and what the question they're asking is. And back to what I always say, it's a, it's a double-edged sword,
3: right? So it depends what objective you give the machine to, to help you try and solve. And if you give it the wrong objectives, it will help you achieve the wrong objectives better than
5: uh, if you didn't have it. Swords have been rather dangerous in the past.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but pins are mightier. <laughs> We've
1: got another, another question over this side.
4: Hi, so I actually got three questions. So can AI make humans eventually as the time go on? That's the first one. And then the second one is, why are humans so afraid of unknown, but still people, especially scientists, were still determined to find out the unknown? And is that what makes us humans? And the third one is, can AI really understand sex even in time.
3: Some, oh, that's well, a fantastic question. Good question.
4: <laughs> hey, uh,
3: from, a, from an evolutionary perspective, curiosity does seem to be one of our traits. Absolutely. And, it, and yes. it does seem to have been something that's helped get us to where we are today.
2: And we need more of it because we have too many cats in Australia. <laughs> so I'm just trying to alienate that last part of the audience that all I haven't alienated the, All really. the
3: cat lovers in the
2: audience, <laughs> yeah. they just hate <laughs> Rob. <Yeah? laughs> Apart from that. Curi- yeah. yeah, curiosity is, you know, some scientists are generally curious people and I think that it's great that there is a subset of humanity who are curious, often, you know, weirdly curious um, because that's how, you know, part of the way in which we make progress. I mean, Um, I know you're
3: an optimist, Rob, um, but, you know, there's that Pandora's box question, right? The Oppenheimer question. Sometimes, would we be better off not actually having gone down those roads and discovered those things? That was, you know, perhaps that was true of the nuclear bomb. Perhaps that will be true of artificial intelligence. Perhaps that will be true of what we know about, we would uncover about the
2: human psyche from artificial intelligence. Inevitably, but I don't know that, you know... I can't think of terribly many technologies in which folks have gone, ooh, we could do something really amazing here, and then gone, no, you know what, we really shouldn't. So (laughs) that's engineering the human genome. Sorry?
3: Engineering the genetically modifying the human genome for a while at least.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think so. But I think part of the the resistance to that is there's a very strong resistance to um, things that we think are weird or unnatural Particularly, people that we think are weird or unnatural. I think that a lot of that sort of view of, of of what we think of as natural as being pure and better, I think, is is already being eroded away. When we go, well, you know, we we don't have to have children that have suffer, you know, with these particular diseases, etc. <laughs> I think that, that we're in the in the middle of because we're thinking about other things like artificial intelligence and climate change. I think we are in the middle of a a, a gradual subsidence of um, resistance to things like genetic engineering. And I think that you might find I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not but saying it's but connect, intimately connected because it, it's it's
3: this speciesism. This we're special in some way, and suddenly we realise no, we're not. Yeah. And there's something unique about it and you realise, no, it's, well, I mean, we're not because it's been evolving so, so much at any rate. But
2: That's right. We are, we're only special because we kind of know each other better than we know the other things and we know what it is to be like us and therefore we can extrapolate what it is to be like other people. But that's, you know, doesn't take us that far. There was another question there, but I can't remember what it was.
1: Can, can AI make people?
2: no. I don't know, obviously, obviously, I don't think AI can make people. I think it might be able to make people better and it might be able to make people different in terms of shaping things, genetic engineering, evolution, etc., cetera, et cetera. I don't know that that's really what it's going to do or be used for <laughs> deliberately.
3: Are you going to hold up your book again? Well, funnily enough, I actually have a book.
4: <laughs>
3: that looks all the fake people that AI is going to be making. <laughs> because AI... To, to answer the question in a, in, in a roundabout way, I think we are going to have to realise that a lot of the stuff we see is fake. A lot of the people that we see, a lot of the people we hear, that we're going to see anything, anything digital, you have to entertain the idea now that it's actually not a, not a real person, but something that an AI has served up for you. And we're going to have to uh, work in a world in which that is the case.
2: It doesn't make people, but it makes influences. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, there there, there are are already AI influences.
1: There are, indeed. Question over here.
2: Thank you for sharing your ideas. I have a really upbeat question. Um, (laughs) We know that uh, the USA and China are locked in a pretty intense technology trade war, uh, particularly over chips, semiconductor chips. We know that military activity, hardware, software is going to be... uh,
3: electronics-based in the future? Do you think it's inevitable uh, that AI could um, accelerate the arms race and make military conflict even
2: more destructive? Thank you.
3: (laughs) You you were lying about the upbeat bit, (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
2: Yeah, that would be my answer, yes.
3: Yeah. No, I mean... Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but, uh, maybe I should... Say a little bit more about it. I mean, you know, I've had the um, privilege to speak half a dozen times at the UN about these concerns, the concerns that many of my colleagues share, which is that the way that warfare is going to be transformed by the technologies. And sadly, of course, we can start to see that on our TV screens. We start to see what's happening in Ukraine, increasing use of drones, autonomy in drones, um, warfare. Historians of war, I'm, I'm sure are going to look back at the Ukrainian conflict just as they look back at the First World War and say, oh, look, we invented tanks and machine guns and that changed the way we fought war. And they look back at the Second World War and we invented long-range bombers and nuclear weapons to de- that were delivered by those long-range bombers that transformed again the way that we fought war. They will look back at the Ukrainian conflict and say, oh, look, we introduced AI and drones and autonomy into the battlefield and that completely transformed how we fought war. Um, and in most of those cases, in all of those cases, I think, it wasn't. didn't make warfare a better thing, didn't make the world a more secure place at all. So I am really nervous, disappointed, uh, saddened to say that AI is going to bring much benefit to our the way we practice medicine, the way we do our education, the way we generate our wealth, but equally it's going to transform the way that we fight our war.
1: This was mentioned very briefly in the last sentence there. But so like AI and like the rise of different types of technology are gonna change our intelligence as discussed. So how do you see this changing how our educational systems work? Um and like how we learn in the first place. And so as a student, like ChatGPT has completely changed all my study techniques. Um but this is just going to continue. So Ch- it like how- changed in a positive way. Yeah, it's in a positive way. Good. Good. So like, how do you see this changing aspects such as standardised testing and like traditional classroom learning and like transforming and minimising the
0: gaps currently in our educational system?
2: Well, as someone who teaches at a university, I've got to say it's, you know, it's an exciting and terrifying time to be doing that because th- things are really, you know, moving at a bewildering pace. And I don't trust myself as somebody who's perhaps remembers a time before the internet and (laughs) slide rules um, to to necessarily win that arms race. Uh, But I don't think we should view it as an arms race. I think it's a really great opportunity for us to rethink, you know, what is it that we want students to come out with? Uh, We actually have to. And we have to come up with different answers from the ones that we've been coming up with for the last sort of certainly 25 years that I've been teaching. Um, so I don't, I don't really know the answer, but I know that it is transforming education and it will do. And I think some mentality of using machines is cheating, um, is silly and pointless and, um, and not futile. equipping people for the workplace either. And futile. Yes. It's going to be impossible to well, tell. Well, counterproductive because it's like saying don't use, you know, we, we would like you to do some complicated calculations. Don't use a calculator. All right, I'll spend all day doing that. Mean you know reasonably straightforward task.
3: Well, it's it's a fantastically um, important question because when people ask me what are the, given all the concerns that we we have touched upon uh, this afternoon about artificial intelligence. Um, you know what are the positives? Why, why do you get up in the morning, Toby, and work on this t- topic, given all of the potential negatives that we have touched about? Uh, you know i 'd say two things: one is the way it 's going to transform our health and the other is how it 's going to transform our education and the potential the opportunities there to to personalize education these these tools are fantastic personal tutors. Um, and you 're right it 's it's, it's futile to say that they 're going to be in, integrated in all of our devices all of our software are going to have these tools they 're going to amplify our productivity so to pretend that you know, people shouldn 't be allowed to use them is is, is you know, not preparing them for the real world um, and also it 's uh, it's futile in the sense that you can 't you know that, it's very easy to fool any of the any of the tools we have to try and recognize the content written by ChatGPT. OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, have just stopped releasing their tool, they said because it doesn't work. It's 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 too inaccurate, it it's biased against people who are speaking English as a second language. Um it's 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 not a reliable way of telling whether people have used um these tools or not. So um but you you talked about Um, filling the gaps the one thing that despite all this opportunity um, the one thing that does concern me is this this won't fill the gap we saw the gap in the in the pandemic when when schools were were closed and children went home and we um, had to connect we had to had to try and attend school online and we discovered even in a first world country like Australia a significant fraction of children have no device at all Right. So if you, if you don't have access to any device to it doesn't matter how wonderful my AI is. It's not going to help you.
1: We've still got two and a half million people in Australia that can't access the internet.
3: Yeah. So, so those two and a half million people, it doesn't, doesn't help us to have, you know, wonderful AI personal tutors that can, that can step in and help them revise and help them study if they don't have a single device in their lives. And so we have to, you know, that's the fundamental gap that we have to fill first. And then once we fill that gap, then yes it is going to perhaps, you know, provide um, personalized education. And um, any teachers in the room, you are one of the safest professions on the planet, I assure <laughs> you, because it will just do, it will it will help um, you deliver that quality education to your kids. But the most important thing that you do is to understand the child in front of you. And machines aren't going to take that away. Um, you know, I'm sure Rob will say, I, you know, I have an internal debt to Mr. Black, my science master,
5: who inspired
3: <laughs> me to become the person I am today. Um, you know, similarly, you know, Rob and I'm sure almost all my colleagues have some inspirational teacher. So the job of a teacher is never going to go away.
2: No, no, absolutely. And I think um, I'm I'm finding to to go back to to my experience in the in the classroom, asking complicated essay based questions, etc., and and getting you know students using these. New tools, the tools of the moment, um, to to write. I'm I'm suddenly no longer just marking them. I'm I'm aware of how much in the past I was marking them on their ability to write compelling English, um, and and now I, my job's harder because I have to really really think about their argument and whether it holds together. Because if you've only just plugged the question into a large language model, you know it 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 becomes quite apparent at the moment. Um, but I'm I'm quite pleased. I mean I also want to teach them to write um, and to write independently etc but I'm very pleased that that's to have this exposed to me just how much I was leaning on can you express yourself properly. Many of my colleagues have said um,
3: students are handing in much better written work now. Yes, I'm surprised <laughs> funny enough. <laughs>
0: Yes, no, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting
3: they're not <laughs> doing the work, but actually they're much better than the, the, the primitive grammators that we had in the past of actually improving the quality of the work. Mm. You actually, you know, it's their ideas, but expressed in a in a in a more fluent way. And it's putting
2: contract cheating companies out of business. Yes,
3: <laughs> yes, the uh, unexpected <laughs> side
2: Will it replace my job? Well, if you're writing essays for college students, it will. <laughs> Have a good look at yourself.
1: <laughs> Got another question over this side. No worries. Thanks so
4: much for the incredible talk, Rob and Toby. But now, you've caused me an existential crisis right here. Because, for example, one of the scenarios now I have playing in my head is of consciousness. If it took me away, my ability to touch, my ability to interact in this world. I'm not even sure this is real anyway, right? Now, and we know that large language models are trained with an amalgamation of huge amounts of information through the internet that it's shown through ChatGPT, and even more so in the future. So in fact, my first question is, if these large language models become sufficiently intelligent, so they have enough information to then represent an average or an amalgamation of what a human being would respond, does that become more human than I am? That's one of my questions. The second question is, and this is interesting in the future as we integrate AI and a lot of these automated mechanisms in our day-to-day life, do you suspect that some sufficiently far point in the future, they would be regarded as God's?
2: <laughs> ah. yeah. mm. well, I think the first one depends on on you know what are, what what's doing the learning and what is it learning from, and are you learning to the the mean point of humanity or the mean point of the of the people on the internet or of whatever the sample is, in which case, I think you know w- w- something that we talk about quite a lot in evolutionary biology is the benefit of being rare, often rare traits are picked up, and that's true in fashion, any kind of influence. What happens is somebody does this weird thing, puts a feather in their cap, and um, and then people go, feathers, caps, that's a great idea, until everybody's doing it. <laughs> and then everyone goes, like, I was into feathers before they were cool, now I'm taking my feather <laughs> <laughs> And we're in the star-bellied snitches again, and that's exactly the, the you know the question about humanity is um, that our idiosyncrasies May be slightly harder to learn and might be slightly harder to fake, and there may be no market advantage in catering to the to the weird ends of of us. Or maybe there is. Maybe there's niche marketing that can be can be done. But you know, hold on to your weirdness and your idiosyncrasies, or what it is that you bring. You know, that's different um, from the people around you because we value that. I mean, I have a problem recognizing people's faces sometimes. I think. Um, Some people just say I don't pay enough attention socially, but, you know, I I think it's really important. You know, you have to look at at, um, distinctions between people and figure out if they all look the same, then you wouldn't have much of a social life, I guess is what I'm saying. The second part about gods, you know, people People are disappointing in their ability to turn... Anything into something to be superstitious about, and yes, a hundred percent. I mean, I'm sure there are growing religions, and there are people, um, you know, benefiting from those um, religions in cynical ways. Um, not to suggest that all religions are cynical or anything like that. Um, but anyway, so yes, I'm sure that there will be. Um, I mean, I know that you can talk to Jesus online now. There is Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus AI, and. You know, uh-huh. reasonable body of work to learn from. So, uh-huh. so it's trained on the Bible? Apparently, or from the, the teachings of Jesus, teaches, I think. Because Jesus. That otherwise, okay. yeah. Not the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> there may be one that's tra- trained on the Old Testament too. Okay. But so yeah, Jesus AI to be not too flippant is a thing.
1: You can Jesus, get a direct response to what would Jesus do? Yes. from
2: the source, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He's blonde
1: <laughs> and he's white. And white, yes. Uh, All the artwork of course tells she us is. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I,
0: think
3: it? uh, uh, I, I think it's American Jesus. I think it's easy to be fooled to think that uh, the large language models we have today, like ChatGPT, are actually smarter than they are. I mm. mean, they're fluent right but what i take away from the success of these models at, at being able to you know write a convincing business letter or or answer uh, an, an essay question is that we've overestimated human intelligence that most of those things most of those human communications that we were doing actually required minimal amounts of thinking, uh, and we've discovered that they were quite formulaic, and now we've got the formulas into our machines. And um, actually, when you do stress them, when you try and get them to think carefully about problems, it's easy to come up with really simple examples where they can't count to three. You know, I mean, I'll share my, just as... I think we've got just time for one, one example to share. My favourite example is this puzzle. You can type this into ChatGPT. I have a five-litre jug and I have a two-litre jug. How do I measure out three litres? Now, you all know the answer, right? I pour the five-litre jug into the two litres. I'm left with three litres of liquid. ChatGPT will give you an 11-step plan. <laughs> and the 11th step ends, is my favourite line. Now, the Um, a two-litre jug will contain exactly three litres of liquid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it was trained on government
4: documents.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So um, we've still
3: got a way to go to, not just to have fluency, but to actually have reasoning and and, and deep understanding that you and I actually have of that language.
1: Unfortunately, we do have to end it there, folks. We could keep talking for another hour and a half, I'm sure, but please join me in thanking Toby and Rob for their time today.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.